dimensional, transforming, musical, linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. I'm Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. A couple of podcasts ago, I played a talk that Sasha Shulkin gave at the 2002 Mindstates Conference in Jamaica. And uh, that talk was titled Natural versus Synthetic Psychedelic Chemicals. And at the same conference, Sasha also gave another talk simply titled Cacti. And that's what you are about to hear in this podcast. But uh, before we listen to Sasha, I'd, I'd first like to mention a publication that's not only the best in its field, that uh, they can also use your support if you are so inclined. And I'm talking about the Entheogen Review. And no, this isn't a commercial. They're not paying me to say this. Uh, I guess I guess you could say it's a real strong plug. <laughs> but uh, you can find uh, find them on the web at www.entheogenreview.com. That's E-N-T-H-E-O-G-E-N-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. All one word. There you are uh, on their website. You'll you'll learn that the. The Entheogen Review is a quarterly publication that serves as a clearinghouse for current data about the use of visionary plants and drugs. Actually, that's what they say. I, I wish they'd change it from drugs to medicines, but uh, anybody out there that hears me that knows who they might be, uh, that might be an interesting change. But anyhow, all their information uh, about subscribing uh, is, of course, uh, there on the website. But what I think it will really blow you away is uh, on the left-hand side of their uh, front page or home page is a, a list of authors of recent articles. And, uh, Jesus, you know, it's like a who's who of the psychedelic literari and scientific community. Uh, and just below that list of names, uh, you'll also find the links to two books that uh, no good library should be without. One is the Psychedelic Resource List, uh, which now, by the way, is in its fourth edition. And uh, that book uh, really lives up to its name. You know, all in one place you have an up-to-date list of all things psychedelic. You know, I, I like to think of it as our tribe's yellow pages. And the other book for sale on the uh, Entheogen Review website is the recently published Trout's Notes on San Pedro. And uh, this gem of a book is a is a hefty 312 pages, and I think it has close to 900 black and white photographs in it. It's a it's a real treasure trove of information, and Trout's really really good uh, at what he does. And I I guess I probably should give full disclosure here that both of these authors are good friends of mine, and I think they are both impeccable to their core. Two of the best spirits our tribe has yet produced. So if you can support their work, you know, their contributions are a benefit to us all. And now, on to the program. Actually, I <laughs> planned on uh, segueing from Trout's book about cacti to Sasha's talk about cacti, but uh, <laughs> I guess I got carried away once again. Anyway, here is Sasha Shulgin waxing lyrically about our good friends, the cacti. I have a very delightful opportunity just talking about cactus, which are you know, little plants that are kind of smaller, tall. 
Uh, no them saying you've seen 3,428,000 species, you've seen them all. That's not like small. No, no, okay. Uh, I've got also to lay an apology down ahead of time. Uh, there are so many names of, of genera and species and varieties and people and compounds and so forth that I must plead a little touch of what I usually call uh, senior moments in which I know exactly the species I have in mind but I somehow can't quite get some up here out. I was on the, listening to the radio about a week ago and uh, I heard a person discuss senior moments, but he used the term brain farts, which I'd never heard before. <laughs> and so I try to avoid them under any name, but they will occasionally happen. Also, primarily I'd like to talk about some of my recent work with cactus, and uh, where it started, and how it's going now, and why I'm going to pretty soon sort of say, I don't know if it's really worth the, the push, and that it's an interesting evolution into getting back into synthetic chemistry again where the, the real magic is. Actually, my first one of my first talks on, on cactus was down in Palenque a year or two ago, which I talked about a cactus that I've been doing some work with. In fact, the uh, introduction of that cactus into our Western culture came at the first of the Mind States meetings in Berkeley, what, four years ago, perhaps? Three or four years ago in which they were offering it for sale in the, in the uh, alley there inside of the international house. And this the cactus has a genus name of Globidia, which I really was taken with. Uh, it is a cactus, and it, I, I love playing around with words. And so if you take the first and third letter of Globidia, you get them out with Bolivia. And that's where the cactus grows. So I, can, I can, really can't see a, a botanist who would have that kind of sense of humor not having a cactus that may be pharmacologically active also. And <laughs> indeed it is. Uh, they were selling it at the mine state, and I was quite interested in um, seeing what's in it. It's never been analyzed. So I had this, uh, they gave me a few samples, the red blossom, the yellow blossom, the white blossom, Lubivia. They call it Lubivia grandiflorus, at that species I remember. And uh, they said it is, um, they're all three colored blossoms, cacti are active, but the, um, the red is the most interesting. Okay, my red died almost immediately, but I had the yellow and white, so I worked them up and looked at what was in them. At, uh, at a, the Palenque meeting where I was talking about this, I was talking a little bit about, you know, the usual trivial things like chromatography, gas chromatography, mass spec, the usual things that I know you're familiar with. Uh, so what I was doing there was giving some sort of a report uh, on what I had found in them and uh, what uh, this person came up to me well, I me approach another way I was sort of working on the farm where I live about uh, four, five, six, eight weeks ago and uh, I have a little whistle like something to detect when the FBI FBI, what's the other uh, DEA comes visiting I get this little horn that says like that so I know someone's driving up the driveway and usually someone has a wrong address but this horn went off and I went out to meet this fellow, and there's a person in a little pickup truck. He is, I put at 32, 34, sort of poorly dressed, uh, a little bit thin, and he says, you don't remember me, do you? And I'd like to have a, a, a 50 cents for every time someone has come up to me and said, you don't remember me, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, I met you down. <laughs> uh, I met you down at Palenque, uh, he said, about four years ago. 
and I asked what you're working on, and you mentioned Lubelia grandiflorus. So what I did, I wrote to a person who sells cactus seeds, or cacti, who said cactus, cactuses earlier? You said cactuses. There are three, there are three plurals to cactus, like octopus, there are three plurals to octopus. You have cactus, cacti, and cactuses, all are plural, potentially. Okay. Octus, octopus, octopi, and octivities, but that's another, another lecture. Anyway, I said uh, grandiflorus, the uh, Lobivia grandiflorus, and I got a collection of maybe 100 or so seeds from this German cactus seed salesman, and I got 100 little black pots, and I put a seed in each pot and watered them, a little bit of food, and that was four years ago. In the back of my truck, I have about 55 Lubivia grandiflorus, which I raised from seed. They're yours. Did you want them? Sure. <laughs> and so next thing I know, I have 55 little containers with about the size of, of grapefruit, uh, of these beautiful cacti. They're all spherical, and they're all presumably of the same. One of them was actually blooming. It was a red blossom, which I was very touched with. And uh, he said, thank you, and he drove away. That was it. I fortunately got his name and his number. He lives somewhere up, up near Fort Ross in California. But he, just, he dropped them off and went away. So I got a good friend of mine who doesn't mind putting out a little bit of labor for a small amount of money. And he planted all these up just up inside the inner gate up there and watered them, fertilized them. So I now have a little bed of these Lubivia. Uh, I have now with the other person, another friend of mine in uh, San Francisco, had all of his cactus in his neighbor's backyard. And he was told about six or eight months ago by his neighbor, he said, I'm going to do something else with my backyard. Would you take these things out, please? So I got a call from him and said, do you mind a few cactus if I move them out to your farm? I said, sure, bring them on. I now have, I'd say, and what, 300, 400 cacti growing on the farm. Some of them three, four feet tall, all kinds of species you would not believe. Many of them the uh, Trichocerus, but some of them not. And they were all planted thanks to... Uh, a lot of help. Thank you, fire. Thank you, earth out there digging holes and putting in lava chips and all that kind of thing. Then another friend came by after a, sort of a 4th of July and said, you know, I've got a lot of extra plumbing uh, and tubing and little electronic dinguses that make water run and not run. Do you mind terribly if I were just install it and put a dripping system on all your cacti? <laughs> so now I have a big piece of barn, probably about 75 cactus of various sorts. A valley, what I call Valley 1 up above where we used to have a vegetable garden, probably another 150. Down below the patio, probably another 75. I have a greenhouse filled with retainers just in case we have a sudden frost. And the place is looking something like a desert in Mexico. It's marvelous. But uh, it's quite experience. Anyway, I had this, this Lobelia grandiflorus. And uh, I have a friend who is up in Washington State who is a botanist of great renown. Came down and said, oh, hey, that's a neat Trichocerus. I said, no, no, it's a Lobelia. No, 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 no. It's a Trichocerus grandiflorus. Okay. So I dropped down in my notebook, Trichocerus grandiflorus. And uh, then another friend of mine lives down in L.A. He's the head of the, uh, it's a botanical curators, what, where is uh, Jim Baum? He's head of some big... Huntington? The L.A. That's it, that's it, yeah. And he came and said, hey, that's kind of a neat uh, cactus. Do you know its name? I said, yeah, it's, uh, I think, Lobelia or maybe uh, Trichocerus grandiflorus. No, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> he said, its name is Trichocerus lobelioides. 
So you've taken the genus over here and jammed the funny meaning on the word over here and made it into a species. So I, here I, I got this marvelous book published in England on all these common, or not even so common, genera and all the little species that go along with them. So I'm looking in there under Trachosaurus, uh, and uh, they said the tra- name Trachosaurus doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it's now known, what is it, like, uh, I have it down, uh, Echinopsis. So I, 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 had this, I had this fantasy of getting maybe eight well-known internationally headed departments botanists all together and a little party and put a chunk of cactus in between them and just stand back and listen to how they argue for territory, ego, whatever it is, so they can dictate names to cactus. I think primarily so they can put a journal out, an established journal with uh, the BBOIDs or something rather like that, as you should know. And that way they get tenure and they get a position on their faculty on botany, and that's not fair to say that botany, I think the same applies to astronomy, to physics, to chemistry, to psychology, all the academic departments have these structures of trying to find that their way is the best way of identifying things. So the first of the problems I want to get into, and I will get to it in a few minutes, before dinner, uh, is the argument of how you know what a cactus is called. Excuse me, Sasha, is that, is that cactus called locally San Pedro? No, 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 no. That's something else. No, that, that's an uh, 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 No. Uh, San Pedro, that's a cactus unto itself. Okay. Uh, I've always called it I've been corrected. It's Pachinoid, Trachosaurus Pachinoid, except there are varieties, uh, they have, you have long spine Trachosaurus uh, Pachinoid, which are the San Pedro, presumably which are not that dissimilar from the short-spined uh, Trachosaurus pruvianus. Uh, and of course, if you have shorter-spined pruvianus, but long-spined Pachinoid, you can't tell them from the Trichosaurus, uh what was the name of the other thing? Uh, somebody's giant. Who knows? The Tom Jules giant. Tom Jules giant, yes. And then you have the Tom Jules giant. John Jules? Tom Jules. Tom. Tom. Tom Jules giant. Which I couldn't tell any of them from any of the others. One was dead and one was five, <laughs> you have to, I found the jewel giant Cracoceras uh, are known as vanilla and non-vanilla, which I took a little bit of searching out. When the blossoms bloom, some of the blossoms <coughs> smell like vanilla, and some don't have any smell at all. And so you have a subspecies of this. So I'm not interested in what they bloom like, what they look like. I'm curious what's in them. And I don't know if I can use the same cactus white. I was told, wait until the cactus puts out what they call puffs, you know, down the bottom of the cactus, boom, 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 all the way around the bottom. These are uh, sort of, you might say, physical reproductions of the original cactus. They should have the same genes, what have you, all should be the same. So I like the idea of saving them in my greenhouse as a retainer sample for what I had looked at in the laboratory. And you look at some of those puffs, and every now and then, the third or fourth puff around the thing looks totally different. You have what are called montroses, which I just discovered the word of. It's a nice way of saying monster. And these are cacti that just look weird. They call them montroses. Then you have crestoses, which means really a weird, nice way of saying crested. The cactus doesn't go up like that. It goes up like this. It has a, has a like an edge up at the top. And so I began looking at some of these in the, in the uh, uh, I'm not even going to get into the San Pedro, but I should, uh, different compositions. You think you have a cactus and you have a variety of vegetative offshoots from that cactus, they should all be the same. Don't kid yourself. Some of them are contained, uh, for example, I was told that the, uh, uh, the macrogonus, which is something I talked about up in Canada, the, uh, I love cactus with a species, this is Trachosaurus macrogonus, 
uh, large corners. Why cacti should have large corners, I don't know, but they're called macrogonus, and they're, they're, they're perfectly fine. And is this active? I asked the person who's the source of my first 50 samples of that or so. Yes, by and large. Uh, I say, well, how do you mean by and large? Well, sometimes they are extremely active, but sometimes I'm using they have no action at all. This is the kind of thing I'm trying to fight through in determining why cacti are active, and I can't even find that they're active. So, this whole thing gets me out of the Cracoceros, uh, 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 I guess the Rebioides, whatever it is, and I want to talk about another cactus which I've gotten very interested in, and uh, that is a not a Pachycerus, but a Zapringlia, uh, a Pachycerus. It's a cactus a good friend of mine found, brought up into my reality. Uh, he is a collector of cave drawings and, and secret businesses inside of nice, nice things. And you go about halfway down to the bottom of uh, Baja, California. On the east coast, there's an area where there's an Indian tribe who lived there in that area. They now go over to the mainland about 200 years ago. But they left paintings inside of the, of the caves in there. He got permission to go in. He loved the idea of painting, took pictures of the paintings. And one of the paintings had a, uh, obviously a religious chief or maybe a god or something. And the guy had a hand like this and he had a hand like that. It was a marvelous painting of an Indian holding his hands like that. And he says, hey, that's not an Indian, that's a cactus. You know. And <laughs> all around the whole area around the cave are these, these cactus here. Apparently I grow in there. And so this must be a religious cactus. So, being a good adventurer, he goes out and cuts down a few of them, boils them up in a pan with a little bit of lemon juice, and he and his wife consume them, and turn on like he wouldn't believe. So I decided, what is making a Pachycerus pringlii? You look in the literature, they have about four compounds known to be that. And so I got this from him, and, uh, oh, I was going to mention one more thing about the, uh, about the, uh, uh Levi-Oides. I talked about that. This is an interesting little aside. Uh, that, that came up because someone was talking about the law, I think it was Jonathan, uh, I found in a very small peak inside of the Lubibioides, uh probably constituting a trace component that had the empirical formula of what would be N-dimethyl-5-methylene-dioxy-phenethylamine. I don't worry about the details. I, I had a blackboard draw it up and I don't draw it up. So here is a material that's known but has never been found in the cactus before it just might be an active compound, and so I'm really carefully documenting its mass spec and uh, synthesizing the compound to make sure that we're okay. The retention time is sample is exactly the same. This is a good encouragement for mass spec. But the ratio between the primary peak and the parent peak was just slightly different. So what else would have the same empirical formula? I snoop around a little bit. You know, the same empirical formula as MDMA. And so if you put a methyl group off the nitrogen and stuck it on the alpha position, you'd have MDMA, same mass spec approximately. And so I just happened to scrape the little trace amount of MDMA to get a reference mass spec. I said, damn thing, just MDMA, I think. So all of a sudden, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, there's an old saying which I, I'm a firm believer in. If you've made a marvelous discovery, wait until tomorrow morning before you publish. <laughs> Believe me, I've saved, I've saved my ass many times. Uh, so how can I find a little bit of MDMA in a cactus that grows down in Baja, California, on the eastern coast, halfway down to the bottom of the, of the, of the peninsula? Well, I have not actually made MDMA in my laboratory for probably 15 years. But I conceivably have had a dirty beaker. I don't know. 
So I, I, I have a very good friend who is marvelous at hydroponics. And so raising a sample of this cactus in hydroponics using a nitrogen 15 nitrate only. And we can get that same thing and get that same peak that has N15 in it, then it has to be biologically synthesized. Very interesting. Don't know the answer, probably won't know for a year. But these are the kind of things that are fun. Talking about MDMA, this brought up the other discussion just a little while ago about the original law. This, I, 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 I eventually, ah, I should tell you, I have what I call little red flags. And uh, when I lecture, especially at the university, I love doing it. I have these uh, red flags are totally invisible to anyone but me. I know where they are. I can see them. No one else can. <coughs> and so I'm lecturing along, and suddenly I, I, I leave my path in my lecture. I put a little red flag in the path. That way I can go off the side, go up the wall, go across the wall, on the ceiling, back down again. The class is about to tell he's lost it. He's lost his fight. I know that flag is. I come back. I pick up my and go up my lecture. So I'm just, I'm just taking a little bit of the side. I'll come back, same place. Um, um, for example, mention was made about NDMA. Uh, there, someone was talking about, uh, who was talking about the uh, endula, uh, Catha edulis? Someone this morning, I guess, was talking about Catha edulis, the source of uh, cat. Uh, there are four plants that are listed in the federal drug law as being illegal. You have peyote, under the name of uh, Anilomio levinii, or whatever they call it. You have the THC, or the, the cat, the uh, mescaline, uh, uh, the uh, marijuana plant under the appropriate, one of uh, several appropriate names. You have under Schedule Two. you have the cocaine plant and you have the opium plant. These are the four plants that are mentioned in the, in the law as originally written. There are two more plants that have been added to the law illegally. And one of them is Catha edulis. They were putting cat on the Schedule One, And they got went through the whole necessary thing about going through uh, 12 months of posting a federal register, holding hearings, all that, at the end of 12 months emergency scheduling. At the end of 12 months, you say, we'll take a six-month extension. At the end of 5.9 months of that six-month extension, they say, no more arguments, it's now illegal. So it's about 18 minus a few days test to put a sample on to the, into the drug law. This is in the law how you to do it. With the Casa edulis, the cat plant, they went through the whole federal register thing with the plant, the, the plant, with the name of the compound. And in there, the very last posting after the 17.9 months thing, they said this this compound is now Schedule One, and of course, because of our history of doing this, so is the plant. It never was mentioned in any of the federal registers up prior to the very last posting. I don't think the plant is legally in there. You have another one in Schedule One. You have uh, material. Uh, I don't know the ibogaine. Uh, ibogaine uh, tabernacle. Uh, in 1970, the law was written, and ibogaine was spelled out as being Schedule One. Uh, the, uh, at that time, there was no DEA at this point, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, BNDD, sent out a notice to all the people around everywhere, industry, academic, what have you. This is the way we intend to write up the federal drug law using these spellings and using this organization. Give us your opinions. And the opinions came in in 1971. They printed up the one with the new correct spellings and all that. And under Ibogaine, they happened to volunteer the name Iboga Tabernathy. It did not go through the necessary 17.9 months. So I don't think that is uh, illegal, legally. You have another two others that are actually fascinating. One of them is MDMA. In uh, 1985, emergency scheduling, MDMA was proposed for scheduling. It had 12 months plus the almost uh, six months of the second thing. And they made it schedule one. That was the end of the issue. In 1988, 
a lawsuit was brought by uh, by Lester Grimsfield back in Harvard that they hadn't done this, hadn't done that, they should have done this and should have done that, and the judge said, okay, you're right, take it out of Schedule 1. So on roughly, I guess, a, give me take a month or two, January of 1988, it was removed from Schedule 1, and then roughly no, uh, next month, February of 1988, it was put back in. So at this point, at that point, it obviously had not, should not have been in before because it had not met these legal requirements. So anyone who's arrested for MDMA between 1985 and 1988 has a damn good argument for having that, that, that penalty thrown out because it was technically not illegal. But when they put the thing back in again, they didn't go through 18 months. They just said, we just make it illegal. Put in federal register, it's illegal again. I don't think MDMA is today illegal. But if you want to fight a battle, I suggest you get a, a, a lot of a, a lot of money behind you because it's going to be a long, long, hard battle. Okay, that was one. What was the other compound I was going to talk about? Oh yes, another one is people say that uh, methamphetamine is Schedule Two. I suggest you get a, a sample of the 1970 listing of scheduled drugs and the 1971 listing of scheduled drugs. You may have to go to a library somewhere to get them, and you'll find in 1970. Uh, injectable MDMA is Schedule 2, but otherwise MDMA, uh, injectable methamphetamine is Schedule 2, but other than that, uh, methamphetamine is Schedule 3. In 1971, they just, everything was Schedule 2, not going through the procedure. So I think if you are nailed with a heavy penalty for normal, methamph normal methamphetamine, you may want to get a, a very expensive lawyer and a lot of money, and you may be able to constitute the throwing out of methamphetamine as a Schedule 2 drug. Interesting idea. Just toss it in there and let it circulate. Okay. Back to the serious thing with my cats. Um, what my friend did, he brought up from uh, Baja, he, had, he and his wife had cooked up a whole batch of this, this stuff in the, the pot in the stove, boil it down, squeeze it out, decant it, put it in a little vial, and we went up into the uh, area near uh, Auburn, in California, where there are a number of people who are interested in this general area of research. <laughs> Almost every small town in the United States you'll find a number. In the world, you'll find a number of people who are interested in this kind of research. And we sat around uh, one at each point of the compass, and there are 12 of us, and we poured out these four vials, three here, three here, three over here, three over here, and you were up there, you remember the incident. And after having cast uh, blessings to the various points of the compass and had said the various religious things necessary to say, we all bound our, our extract of the package of Springley Interesting experience, very definitely psychedelic. A little bit on the light side. Uh, what it is, I, my personal experience was I was sitting in a theater, a strange theater, and I was looking at the stage and there's activity on the stage but the damn curtain had not been opened yet. And I worked for about a half an hour trying to get that damn curtain open because I wanted to see what's going on the stage. Couldn't quite get it. I just couldn't get that concept open. Other people saw what they saw, but I couldn't see it. About uh, three months later, he brought up another sample, boiled up in the same way, and we went up to the same place and we had another religious ceremony and we all took. I think with good fortune, both Anna and I took the same amount we took before, just to be sure that everything was going to be all right. And of the 12 people, three, uh, six, totally of two of the vials, six of us came down viciously poisoned. And the other six had a marvelous trip. All from the same boiling, all from the same cactus or mixture of cacti, I don't know which. And uh, in my case, I, I could not move. I managed somehow to work myself onto a bed downstairs 
and I just lay still. I know if I wiggled my toe, I'm in trouble. And I lay still for about 40 minutes, and eventually my, I began feeling safe to move again. And you had the six who were very ill, had diarrhea, and he locked himself in the one bathroom for the, for the couple, three hours. <laughs> uh, but one of the people in the experiment happened to be a microbiologist, and he took a sample back to see if he could raise some sort of a growth in this, if not in that, maybe as an endotoxin from some bug. And I took samples from the good and the bad for GCMSing to see if there's some component in the bad that was not in the good or vice versa. Neither of us found one hint of what was going wrong. To this day, I do not know why six of us were viciously ill and six of us had good trips. So it gives you a little bit of... So that, that, this caught my fancy. And I wanted to go into finding out what is in the cactus, what is in there. Look, the literature gives four compounds uh, that are, are interesting. But I thought I did... Uh, how many people here are at totally at peace with chromatography? Chromatography. Well, okay, that's five. How many people are at, at peace with uh, GL, uh, gas liquid chromatography? Uh, HPLC, uh, not HPLC, uh, gas liquid chromatography. One, two, three. The first page is what happens when I took a little smudge of this of, the, of this cactus extract and dissolved it in 9010 uh, 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 of and put it in a jeep. A chromatography, in essence, is like you spill some butter, butter on your on your t-shirt, and you want to wash it off, and you wash it off a little bit of gasoline or hexane. As you wash the hexane off, the butter moves down the shirt in its own slow pace. If you had only margarine or something else, it probably moved in a slightly different pace. So if you had a mixture on your shirt of margarine and butter, and used gasoline, you could separate the two as they went down your shirt. This is chromatography. Now. <laughs> Uh, not, okay, I could have picked a better example. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, in 1920-something or other, I forget his name, Schmidt or something like this, in Germany, uh, everyone knew what chlorophyll was. It's the green stuff that makes plants green. And he made a solution of chloroform, and he made up some ground-up sand, I think it was, and poured the solution, got the solution of sand all wet with some solvent or other, and put this chlorophyll on top of the thing, and added more of the solvent, and the chlorophyll moved down through this ground glass column, and they went down and separated into four bands. And he collected first, and the second came off a little more, third came off, and the fourth. He identified chlorophyll as being a mixture of four compounds by using ground sand and a solvent. This is the very first of chromatography. Hence it's because it's chlorophyll green, that's why it's called chromatography. Uh, but that's back in the, in the 20s. So this has now gotten to a very sophisticated thing. The gas chromatographic system I use here has a capillary column made of quartz that is about 30 or 40 feet long in a, in a spiral like this. It is so fine internally you cannot put a human hair into it. It's about a tenth of the diameter of human hair. And it's coated on the inside with a material that is really bound to the quartz. So when you inject something hot in there, the gas runs through this whole thing, and this thing moves a little bit more slowly than the gas, wanting to move with the gas, which is moving, but also wanting to adhere to the outside surface that is not moving. And the more volatile the sooner it moves, faster it moves, the more less, less volatile it is, the more slowly it moves. And so if you put the goop in the front, it runs through this long thing, and after about four or five minutes, something begins coming out the tail end, then something else comes out, then something else comes out. So this is a form of gas chromatography. I'm separating things by means of a long silica uh, spiral uh, into its various components. Then you have mass spec. How many are pieces of mass spec? One, two, three, four, five, eight, more. I mean, there's no picky on mass spec when I get away from it. Uh, I think the best way I, I tell about it, when you take a, a, a molecule 
There's a bunch of atoms all hooked together. And they're all bonded together. Every bond has a couple of electrons in it. So you have however atoms, many atoms you have, you have an even number of electron bonds. So it's 28 electrons to 30 electrons, 32 electrons. And if you go and whack this thing with a very, very energetic electron, you knock the electron out. So suddenly you have a molecule with an odd number of electrons. And it can't stay together, it falls apart. And as it falls apart, it falls apart in fragments that are different degrees of stability, different sizes, and this is a fragmentation aspect. So if I had this, this stuff coming out of the column over here, and coming to an area where I get under a vacuum, I can hit it with a hot electron, and let the stuff be accelerated down a little, some sort of a thing that accelerates things. And it goes down this way, and at the very end you have a, a large, you have a large piece of film. And I have a great big head sitting down here. And all these things are coming through, and the more massive they are, the less they're detected by the magnet. So if something real massive is going in there, a little bit like that. Something very nice going up down there. You develop the film, this is written, this is in 1960s, what the mass effects were. You develop this film, and you have the light things down there, and the heavy things up there, and you can tell what the mass is of those fragments by where it is on that film. So suddenly you've broken the molecule apart into little bitty things, and you can measure the amount and the mass of those little bitty things by means of a magnetic diversion. Now they have what's called quadrupole, you have four little lines of the RF field going around the detector over here. You shove the stuff into the thing and it goes into the magnetic field and it whangs into the detector and you vary the RF in this field and faster and faster or whatever, lower and slower and slower. Anyway, light come out first, the heavy come out later and the very heavy yet later. This whole thing takes about a third of a second to give you a complete spectrum. So every third of a second, three times a second, you get bing, 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 all these mass specs coming out. And then you have this machine, blessing on computers up to a point, uh, that will take all these little things coming out and add it. If there's a lot of coming out, you get a deflection of the pen up like that. Not much coming out, you don't get much deflection. So suddenly a peak comes out and you get thunk, 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 thunk. Each of these, every third of a second, you get another thing. So you can see the amount of material and its retention time by plotting the total mass of what's coming out. But every single Third of a second, you have a complete spectrum of what's coming out, and in the computer, you can bring out the spectrum. So you're not going to tell what comes out in what order, and what's early, what's late, what's mixed, what's separated, what's not separated. But what you can tell is what the mass and what the charge arrangement is on each of the fragments. So not only do you know where the mixture is in the sense of resolving it, but you know, have a good insight of what the materials might be that are in that mixture. Okay, so now the first of the Okay, the first of the, of the pictures is what happened when I put that little extract. This was not the poisonous one, not the non-poisonous one. This is the first of the ones about three months earlier. <coughs> I put a little smudge in there, and you can see there's a nice little peak, and then a bing bong bong, this is the first of the thing, and a total of about eight or ten peaks. And notice the middle peak of this, more or less middle peak, is quite a big monster. That is the major component of this, of this cactus. The second picture, I took that little section of these materials coming banging out there and blew it up horizontally. In the beauty of computers, you turn the knob, stretch it out, you print. And this is a picture of, of those things. Now you see that big piece, really monster, overloaded as a matter of fact. It's so big it's, uh, it's warped. But all the little peaks, B, E, I made these letters, you'll see why in a moment. Identify them so I know the chromatogram belongs to what peak. And the third thing in there, I took the bottom quarter inch of this entire thing and printed out to bring out the noise level. And there suddenly you see, you can see another 15 feet. So here's a total of 20, 25 feet. Every one of those, I have a mass spectrum. 
So if you know and you have a reference sample, you know what that material is. I found dimethoxyphenethylamine, I found dimethoxyphenethylamine, I found chlorine, I found all kinds of phenethylamines. But the bulk of these things are isoquinolones. And I really got turned on about four years ago, five years ago. By the way, the book on simple plant isoquinolones, I put a few flyers in the back table uh, to introduce it. It's dull. I finished, it's finally been printed about a month ago. Uh, it's a, a listing of the very simple isoquinolones about, I was writing a, an appendix for the third book with, with Anne, and I was going to put a little appendix in there on simple isoquinolones from plants, and by the time I got the information compiled in one place, it was over 600 pages of information. <laughs> and so I decided to be a book by itself, which it is. Dull, no sex, no drugs, no excitement, strictly dull. It lists the name of the trivial name of the isoquinolone. I found a way of alphabetizing structures, which is kind of neat. It lists the alphabetization of all the structures, with the plants that are in there, their names and plants. And the very last section of the book gives the, the names of all the plants with cross-indexed references. So if you have an uh, interest in an alkaloid that is an isoquinolone, or a plant, or a structure, it's in that book. And uh, as I say, there's no excitement in it. I recommend it only if you're one of the few people in the world who would be interested in that particular thing. But the, there's a brochure back there if you want to read about it. So what I did... Uh, where am I? Why am I? Sasha, where's the book available? Uh, we, uh, we had the uh, Transform Press, but that gives the uh, mailing address of the press. Mm -hmm. And the number of suppliers of uh, stock. Uh, okay, where am I? Where am I? Why am I here? Uh, yeah, the uh, interesting, the, the fourth picture is an actual picture of the mass spec of that major peak. And it shows you the extreme parallel between K is the number K, that's the big peak on the uh, best seen on the, on the first of the four, and uh, what it is, uh, that's a mass spectrum that came out, that was recorded in a, in a third of a second, and then I had a feeling, uh, I looked vaguely familiar, and I went into my files, and I found a structure of carnagene, and had very similar spectrum, so I synthesized carnagene, that's the structure down below here, isoquinlin, with two methoxies and two methyl groups, a straightforward synthesis, made a sample, and super and the two spectra are superimposable. Uh, so that major peak is carnitine. Uh, now that that is, is quite quite certain. I looked in the literature. Two people had worked on this particular cactus before. They published the compounds they had found. None of them had mentioned carnitine. So what's going on here? Again, is this a, is this the right cactus? Is it the right name? Why did they not see it? What cactus they're using with? Uh, so I, I began snooping around different different sources of the cactus. I got a sample from Baja California. I got a sample from Mesa Gardens back in south of uh, Albuquerque. I got a sample from what's this place with the horrible name up near Ripon? Poot Poot's cactus up near Ripon. Uh, and you sent me a sample. I got another sample from some other source. And I don't know if it's your sample I ran or the samples from other source, but I, I have it in my, my lab, one of my lab books here. I did not record the source of the spectrum I ran. Uh, I ran a spectrum totally different. Totally different. So I'm back into the argument of how do you have to run the same cactus twice? How do you, how do you know what you have? And so I, I'm really a, uh, a little, a little uncomfortable with this. I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say that this is the right cactus. Uh, I have a lot of different the cactus itself is a neat little thing uh, they grow about six or eight inches in diameter very fine fluting they have uh, almost whitey spine with a cast of blue to them 
And so you look at it from the distance, it looks like it has blue spines, even though that's right, right refraction. But it has a sharp uh, spines that kind of curve in like cat, cat's claws, and it has a bluish white appearance. So I got samples from Poots, I got samples from uh, Mesa, and I've been running them also, different spectrum. Uh, I'm keeping a reference sample of each plant, so if anything really comes to push comes to shove, I can say, this is the plant I ran, but the trouble is I'm not even sure those are valid. So this is where I'm getting off into, into, into strange territory. I am beginning to believe that the idea of trying to find all these active material in cacti uh, is looking at the wrong thing. This is my own, my own feeding, my own direction I'm going in a little bit right now. Uh, I think the cactus is, I don't think I can explain why a cactus is that. Take, for example, this carnagene. Uh, I took it up to 100 milligrams, and I'm now hesitant at 100 milligrams, because it is known to be a bacteriostat, bacteriocide, or bacteriostat, which, which doesn't bother me at all. But in some animals, it's also a convulsant, which does bug me a little bit. And I'm not quite sure if I really want to go any higher. I don't uh, turn on by convulsing. Uh, but also, uh, what is, is an interesting point is uh, it has to be a tremendously good monamine oxidase inhibitor. And I'm wondering, both, both of these little peaks in this thing are, are, are isoquinolins. Several of them are really effective uh, monamine oxidase inhibitors. I have run a mixture of this through a general screen, very effective uh, uh, de inhibition. And I'm wondering, uh, I asked uh, Jonathan if I could steal a word potentially from him, and he said, sure. And so I'm calling, I, I coined the word, thank you, Jonathan. Are you here, Jonathan? Yes. Yeah, oh, good. Uh, yeah, uh, the <coughs> cactus wasp, you use parma wasca, you, you use all kinds of different waskas. So I, I have the, the term cactus wasca, uh, which I think is a mixture of alkaloids that contain phenethylamines, and indeed there are a lot of phenethylamines in this particular cactus, that themselves are known not to be active, and they contain isoprenolins that are known to inhibit the contamination of these methylenes. And I have a feeling you're going to get in a situation in which you're not going to find an active compound, but you're going to find an active cactus, because it contains at least two compounds, let's say, make a simple, two compounds, one of which is deaminated and hence is not active, and the other of which inhibits that deamination. So you eat the cactus, take both compounds, you turn on, Eat a compound alone, you don't. It's very much like ayahuasca in combination with DMT and harmony. So that is where this one is kind of going. So what I want to do with the cactus now is not to try to identify why they're active, but really pursue what's in them. And let this be a clue as the kind of direction for the synthetic things to go into. I'm sy- I must have synthesized, oh, 20, 30, 40 of these isoquinolins. I have a very good friend in, the, uh, in Virginia, the state of Virginia, uh, who has a marvelous monamine oxidase inhibition assay, A's and B's, and so I'm sending him 10 at a time, and he's running them all through, and we find, for example, methylene dioxy is much more potent than the dimethoxies, and if it's not, both methyl groups not, so you give these clues, and I want to synthesize 10 more isoquinolins with the active thing here, the active thing that could vary the degree of aromaticity, find that things that are active, that maybe one more pass, keeping that most active aromaticity thing in there, and maybe vary the position of the methoxy groups or the methoxy group, variations like that. I will wager three passes with his health. And I'm going to come up with a monamine oxidase inhibitor. It's going to be in a cactus somewhere. And it's going to be an active compound. It's going to be a potent inhibitor. And if nothing else, that itself might be, a, um, might be an interesting uh, experimental research tool. 
So this is kind of where it's going. Now into the cactus, more from the idea of finding what's in there, getting ideas, different kinds of groupings that might be on there, and uh, it, it's a fascinating area. Actually, what I'm going to talk about is it tomorrow, whatever the next talk is, is getting back in the laboratory again because another thing that is eroding uh, very much my my uh, dedication to cacti as a primary target is the fact that I've come across a whole new bunch of tryptamine ideas. And in these tryptamine ideas are a whole new bunch of activities. Someone asking me, I've asked someone asked just outside, do you have a permit? I think he's from Germany. Do you have a permit to do this kind of work? And I said, I don't see why you need a permit. Well, are these are illegal drugs. Yeah, you know what I asked. These are illegal drugs. No, they're not. Well, are they in the law? No, I'm just now making them. <laughs> there is a, there is a, a four year I'll make it round round four year delay between making a new compound finance activity and then four years down the line the DEA gets around to scheduling it and you get that problem but I got a four year lead and I want to keep that that going ahead that way and it's, it's totally legal I don't have an illegal drug in my lab I, as soon as they schedule something I throw my record sample away there's no problem there but the whole beauty this whole area is absolutely I cannot begin to explain the, 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 the joy, the pleasure, the absolute magic of making new compounds. Compounds never made, something never, these never been made before. And you, once you make them, oh, well, maybe that wasn't a cactus, maybe it's not. Can just give yourself the theoretical picture of having a white solid in a nice petri dish in your lab. You just made the thing, you know it's right, got a spec on it, you get red on it, everything's absolutely right, it has a rightness. CHN analysis, everything's in order, uh, everything looks beautiful. And you're looking at that white solid, and you say, you know, no one has ever made that before. It's not in the literature, and I will wager that it's never made. Maybe in yonder galaxy somewhere there's a chemist who made that, I don't know. But certainly not on Earth, at least there's no, no record that it's anywhere on Earth. And you have this little white crystal solid out there, you say, you know, but that may be a psychedelic, uh, 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 and theogenic. I happen to like the term psychedelic. We, we cross swords occasionally, Jonathan and I, but that's okay. Uh, this may be a psychedelic. How are you going to find out? <laughs> Obviously, huh? <laughs> You're going to taste it. But how much do you taste? What's your first taste? What analogy do you draw from what you know in your literature and so forth to say, Whoa, I think I'll start, no, I think I'll start with a tenth of that. How much do you determine? You don't know that compound. That compound does not know you. I mean, it's a total alien relationship. And the only way you can get into it is by saying, well, let's see, I know something very close to that. Exactly, but uh, maybe three, four, five. Nine. I better start at hundred micrograms. Nah, I'll start with one microgram. <laughs> if you start at hundred micrograms or one microgram, the difference in weight is trivial. But it takes time. But then you have several other things you assay in between, and you, you work them out. And you you eventually find you get into it's a beautiful it's a situation where you cannot lose because when you eventually get up to an area where you know what the activity is. You, now you know the compound a little bit, <laughs> of course it now knows you, and you have established this little relationship. Uh, dialogue is a strange sort of thing, but it's there. I mean, you, you, you're, you're kind of talking to it in a funny way, and you certainly can hear it like plants, whatever you talk to in the jungle. Uh, you're talking a little bit with it, and uh, you say, you know, I think you are an active psychedelic at between 100 and 150 milligrams. 
Uh, and then you cannot lose because you publish that, you put it out in the book, you write a book, you put it in the, in the, in the political literature, that this is that can count on such and such a level. And someone will come up and say, we tried that and it is active. You're right. You're right. You win. Right? Uh, then someone else will come up and try it out and say, it's not active at that level. What did I do wrong? You win. <laughs> Either way, you've got a winner. So that's the beauty of publishing for everything out there. Uh, and uh, it's, 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 it's an exciting thing. The idea of just taking something totally unnew, lifting up a rock out in the field and seeing what's crawling under it is one of the most exciting things I can conceive of doing. Because you're seeing something that's never seen before. And this whole area, this whole area of, of synthesis, these isoquinolins are just absolutely delightful things to work. They're all crystal solids. Or some of them have inoxides, a little tricky to make. And uh, possibly you get aromatic rings and you get little problems with fluorescence and decay in sunlight. You have to be a little careful with some of them. But to a large measure, they're stable. And they are easily handled, and they're all white crystalline solids, which is uh, maybe a bit racist, but that, that's what I have enjoyed working with. Oh, one thing on, on this picture I quite forgot to mention, somewhere I got some glasses. You take the third of the four pictures, and you get a very good view of it over on peak P and Q. And if you look at P, you'll find you can see the little lines going up every third of a second like that to the top, and down every third of a second, down to where it becomes Q peak. So you can actually actually see, L is even a better example. We have little steps going up. Every one of those steps is recorded over a third of a second. And every one of those steps is a different separate mass spec. And what you can do with the mass spec, which is absolutely marvelous, is take a peak that comes out like this, and check every single step on that peak. And sometimes you find that the spectrum going up is different than the spectrum coming down. There's two compounds that happen to come out almost at the same time. And suddenly you have two compounds, and you only thought, thought you had one. Another thing you can do with this, oh, God, thank goodness for the computers that run this. I mean, if you have an XD of dollars $100,000, I recommend you get one of these machines. They're, they're, they're beautiful things to play with. They now have what they call a triple quad. We have one over at the at General Hospital in San Francisco. Instead of being a mass spec with a quadrupole, it's three mass specs, in essence, in a row, all running the same sample, all at the same time. Uh, about a third of a million dollars. We only have, watch, well, we have two now. Uh, fortunately, thank, thank you, government grants and other people who would help. Uh, but what it is, you can put a sample in there and uh, you can actually run this liquid chromatography, not gas chromatography. So you can run salts, you can run quaternary salts, you can run things that are not volatile, you get them through this sort of thing. Phil, I worked with Peyton over there and ran a beautiful, beautiful example. Uh, we've always had the uh, sort of a uh, the axiom that we've always followed, nicotine is everywhere. I mean, you can take a swipe and write this little thing over here and come up with a staggering amount of nicotine. Because somewhere within the last few months, someone smoked in here. And that nicotine is on this, on that, it's everywhere. So he was running on this triple quad, which has pretty good resolution, but superb sensitivity. Forget nanograms. You're down in the picos and below. I mean, that kind of sensitivity. Really gorgeous. And he was running a sample of serum that he was not looking at nicotine, but at copine, which is a major metabolite of nicotine. And he's running a sample of a plasma sample down through the things, getting beautiful down to very small levels. Down, when he got near, down at the bottom of the picogram area, things got a little bit noisy. This is not, not, not a very good curve. The curve sort of gave up and made a 10 picogram per an hour or something like that. And so he tried something else. The plasma sample deteriorated down around 5 or 10 picograms per an hour. I so say, figure this is a, then on pure insight, 
just pure luck, on, on imagination, on, on truly a marvelous thing to have tried. He had back in the lab some tetradeuterocopenes, which in a sample was four of the hydrogens in deuterium, so it has a mass of four or more. Other than that, it's a for all types of purposes, resolution, chromatography, everything else. Spectrum is the same, except it's four masses heavier. And he spiked a, a clean plasma sample uh, with this tetradeuterocopene, ran through the mass spectrum, that right through the zero. Just beautiful. Well, tetradeuter is not out in nature. So somewhere 18 years ago, someone who's smoking a cigar happened to spit into the solvents, the, in the solvent factory, they were buying super pure solvents. And those solvents are loaded with cocaine. And so you don't get a good baseline because it's everywhere. So I, I think back in the marvelous sample, the example was given some time ago, of, of uh, you have money, you have paper money, ha, guess what's on it? They said, well, we proved there's cocaine on it. All paper money has cocaine on it. This was established first by the DEA, surprisingly enough. They don't talk much about it, but all, a lot of laboratories verified it. All paper money has cocaine on it. All paper money has methamphetamine on it. So if you want to be arrested for possession of the uh, drug, they all look at your paper money and you're dead. On the other hand, everybody else's money in the bank, the minister, what have you, has cocaine, has methamphetamine, has all these things on the paper money. And uh, the idea, the analyses are now so sensitive, so extremely sensitive, that you can't get baselines that are zero anymore. You always get something. And it turns out to be pretty much what you're looking for. So the idea of looking for traces, oh, you take a blood. Someone, I think, who was talking about uh, natural, Jonathan, you're talking about uh, in beef, where you find morphine as a metabolite in, in animals. Japan has a law that any trace of morphine should be considered a drug positive in humans. If you have a hamburger, you are morphine positive. And therefore, you are against the law in Japan. That's how sensitive you are right now. You can see these things in minuscule, absolutely minuscule levels. The, the, the analyses are so, so extremely sensitive that they, in essence, are worthless at trace amounts. And that sounds not very nice. But, but, that's the way it is. But I'm open for questions. Uh, who has questions? Someone, someone raise a hand. Someone. Oh, that that brings up a fascinating point. The same. Forget his name. He's down in Utah. Uh, he's the one who is one of the two sources of cryptamines being in cactus. Uh, and people often ask me, are there any cryptamines in cacti? Well, uh, there are two things. His paper. That wasn't a paper. Uh, there was a person named Bai, who was an anthropologist, who published an article on the Tarahumata Indians and their little cacti, what's in them. And it was published about 1960-something, in the early, late 60s, early 70s. And he said, uh, we have found a peyote, and in the Tarahumata, this is the northern part of Mexico, down, just down in the Sonora, over the, uh, what's it called, a little tiny dog that has escaped me back tomorrow. Chihuahua, that part of Mexico. Uh, the Tarahumata in there use the word peyote not for what we know as peyote but for any small cactus that has medical use. So you have to be very careful of the use of the term peyote in northern Mexico. Down central Mexico down along with the Huichol and all that thing it's routinely the peyote cactus. In the Tarahumata it's any small cactus that has medical action. And he had this and he had as Bai said he ran a color test on it he looked at the color test you know my opinion this is a cryptomy. And so it went into Bai's 
paper as being a tryptamine in this particular cactus, I forget, the area carpus or something or other. In this particular cactus, there was a tryptamine reference personal communication. This friend of mine back in Purdue. And I know him well enough to know that he had found a tryptamine in cactus. I gave him between three and four weeks before that appeared in some journal somewhere. I mean, he's very, very, he wants to be in front of everything that he is, a lot of us in front of it. It never appeared. And so I contacted my other, one of my other allies in Purdue and found uh, that he had not published it. So I, he had moved to Utah. I moved to Butler, Utah. And I said, whatever happened to that pyptamine you found in, in cactus? It's one of the two reports in the literature of pyptamines being cacti. He said, well, it turned out to be an imbecile. It wasn't pyptamine at all. So that took care of one. There's another issue. Uh, the first edition of Hoffman and Sotis. Um, uh, uh, book on uh, the uh, plants and uh, hallucinogenics, whatever the name of the thing is, had N-N-dimethyl, had DMT as being a co component of cactus dimethyl cryptamine. And uh, that was the other one. They had some sort of a reference, but it wasn't as fine of a reference. Again, a communication of some kind. The second edition of the book, the same place, those two pages had just been removed. It was not in the second edition at all. So I got a photo of Hoffman and said, what are, you, what are you changing your mind here? What's going on here? Well, he said, that, that, was a, that was a kind of an interesting mistake. He said, what it is, is uh, the secretary who's typing it got as far as the N-N-dimethyl, and she had DMT on her mind, and she just wrote a tryptamine. Actually, it's N-dimethyl messamine. And so that's the second appearance of tryptamines in cactus that was shot down. Except the fact that I found gramine, but they're not confirmed in one cactus. I don't really know of any documented uh, tryptamines anywhere in any cactus species. They may well be there. I mean, things like cryptophane and amino acids don't count. I mean, alkaloids and are cryptamines. I see it. Hey, hey, ha! Got a question. Is it possible that um, where the different cacti, which are the same cacti, um, if there's different uh, chemicals in the soil, that you will get something different in the different cacti, or is that just way out? Not only possible, it's almost a certainty. <laughs> These are things I, I was telling someone earlier about my friend David Repke down in, uh, oh, what's that five-letter job down in the commits of San Francisco? Uh, uh, Roach. Roach? Oh, Roach. It's a cyber He's a chemist down there, well, because I published a lot with him. He's a master of uh, tryptamine synthesis. Almost all my synthetic skills of tryptamine I've learned from him. He had a growing in the back of his backyard an acacia uh, babyana. This is in the Bay Area, the acacia that in the springtime you don't see any green leaves because it's solid yellow. And that little penny point blossom that makes the whole tree yellow, then the yellow drop and you see the green leaves and it's a nice tree. And he in his backyard gathered leaves from that thing in the spring, in the summer, in the fall. Put them all in the freezer. The next year he worked them all up at the same time in the same way to see what the DMT levels were. And in one of the samples, which it is, it's all been published, he found DMT at a fairly high level, almost no other alkaloids, but a little bit of harmine and harmaline. A second sample had heavy harmine and harmaline, but no visible DMT. And the third sample had no alkaloids at all. The same tree, same clipper, same snipper, same freezer, different times of the year. Yeah, one of the beautiful examples of that is a fellow named, um, oh, I forgot his name, <laughs> senior boy. Uh, he was looking at a plant in uh, the uh, uh, on the Orinoco down in uh, in South America, and it's a plant that was used to help 
snap blood flow off after childbirth, and they had this going over here, and the, and the maitre d' know what call these people, but Curandellos, uh, what they called? Said, this is a plant that is so superb it saved many lives in childbirth. And he said, I have a botanist, I'd like an example of it. So look, no, not that plant, this plant. They're the same plant, I have a botanist, I know. This plant doesn't work, this plant does work. It's the same plant. Impact. So he had the wit to take samples from both plants. He samples back both plants, and this is where I learned the term endophyte. I've never heard the term before, but this came up. And he took both plants back with him to his lab back wherever it was in the United States somewhere. And um, he ran both of them, and it turned out one of them was loaded with ergots, and the other was totally devoid of ergots. Same plant. Exactly the same plant. Well, it turns out the ones loaded with ergots had what are called endophytes. Inside the plant, the ergot isn't there, it's not visible. In the blossom, the ergot is there, but it's in the blossom, you can't see it. The seed contains it, but it's inside the seed, you can't see it. You plant the seed, you get a new plant, you don't see the ergot. At no point is that ergot visible outside of the plant. The Curandero knew because this one worked, this one did not. So you have this kind of thing that can make identical plants be totally different. Yes? Um, I sort of had a vague recollection from the first MySpace conference that you had thought that it was uh, DMT that was found in the uh, Trinceros uh, Graniflores? Uh, no, it was the uh, Trinceros Graniflores. That would be the, uh, no, that was the MDMA. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I get to find the, I found hints of Granin, which is an indo, but not quite a nice, it's not creepy, actually. No, I'm not, I'm not found uh, DMT. DMT is a lot of plants, I'm sure that grasses and other things, but not, not the cactus. Well, I'm sorry to have to cut it off here, but the hour is getting late and the file size is getting large, as they say. There's about another 45 minutes of Q&A left on this recording, so maybe one day I'll get that out as its own podcast. And speaking of the recording itself, I again want to thank Kevin Whiteside for making a recording of this talk and for letting us use it uh, here in the Psychedelic Salon. John Hanna, thanks again for producing these Mind States conferences. You know, right right now I think they're probably the closest thing uh, to a university that our tribe has. So uh, I think they're very valuable resources to the community. And Sasha, thanks again for everything. There's absolutely no doubt in the minds of anyone I know in the psychedelic community about the fact that, uh, indeed, the world is a significantly better place right now than it would be had you not undertaken your great work. And I'm sure that everyone who joins us here in the Psychedelic Salon joins me in wishing you and Anne just tons of ever-increasing joy. And to Chateau Hayuk, thanks again for the use of your music here. And to all of you here in the Psychedelic Salon, thanks again for being here. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.